Welcome to Generously Speaking, a podcast series developed by Capital Development Services, where we hear from area philanthropists, foundation executives, corporate leaders, and others who share their experience, insights, and ideas on the nature of generosity and philanthropic giving. Here are your hosts, Alan Burroughs and Claire Jordan. Here we are in the midst of unprecedented times, creating a dramatic rise in the demand for nonprofits and their services. Despite social distancing, we are using this podcast to bring you closer to those who have great insights and wisdom to help you during these times. That's why we here at CapDev are launching this podcast. We are bringing thought leaders in the nonprofit sector directly to you, since you cannot always come to them. We want to highlight generosity by speaking with those who can help share your great stories of philanthropy. In addition to the audio on our podcast recording, you can also access episode notes of these conversations on our website at capdev.com slash podcasts. So let's get started. Today, our guest is Rhett Mabry, president of the Duke Endowment. Since 1924, the Duke Endowment has worked to help people and strengthen communities in North Carolina and South Carolina by nurturing children, promoting health, educating minds, and enriching spirits. Red has been with the Duke Endowment since 1992 and became its president in 2016. We're excited to have this friend, this mentor, and this leader across the Carolinas to share with us his advice and his wisdom during these times. Rhett, welcome to Generously Speaking. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure to be a part of this show, so thank you for the invitation. Well, we're excited to have you. Obviously, the, the Duke Endowment, uh, the role you have played in both North and South Carolina, since 1925, and the amazing amount of generosity and work that the endowment has done through these years. So thank you for that. And going through the times that we're going through, we thought it would be a great opportunity to get your thoughts from the landscape of what the Duke Endowment is thinking, what, and it may be still formulating, but what you guys are offering in terms of general advice to the sector and maybe some specific things that you're seeing or communicating with directly. But what advice would you give to not-for-profits at this time? Well, again, thanks for the opportunity. You know, I'm not sure we have any um, unique insights into the challenge at this point. I think we would say a lot of things that you're hearing from a lot of different levels about uh, be patient try to work remotely, be safe, take care of your families. On a practical standpoint, we would say this may be a time to focus on basic needs, food, shelter, clothing, safety, things of that nature from a healthcare perspective. Of course, we're a big healthcare funder across North Carolina and South Carolina. You know, we all have our part in terms of keeping appropriate distance, but within the healthcare industry, I think there's things like increasing testing and some funders are participating and trying to make tests more prevalent and um, more usable. Also about increasing PPE, personal protection equipment. I think there's a, a lot of conversation about that so we can keep our healthcare workers safe. And obviously ICU beds and ventilators. So again, none of that's different from what you typically are hearing on TV, et cetera. I think in general for nonprofits, though, I do think some help is on the way. I think obviously everyone's aware of the uh, $2 trillion plus stimulus that was passed uh, in Washington recently. Our board has a specially called board meeting. I've been with the Duke Endowment for more than 25 years, and we've never had a specially called meeting. So this will be a first for the Duke Endowment. Uh, But we're calling that meeting specifically to consider a recommendation by staff 
to provide some support in North Carolina and South Carolina to respond to the uh, coronavirus and to the crisis that's around us. We have participated with hurricanes in the past, and we think of uh, the whole phases of the hurricane, or we divide them into three phases. There's the response phase where you're trying to deal with immediate needs. And quite frankly, FEMA has gotten pretty adept because hurricanes happen so frequently now. They've gotten pretty adept at addressing the aftermath or the crisis around hurricanes. But then after that, there's the recovery phase and the rebuilding phase. And in the last few times where we've provided support in response to hurricanes, we've tried to focus most of our resources on the recovery and the rebuilding phase. Mm -hmm. We think that's a better use of our dollars. For this one, though, what our board's going to consider is a recommendation to put some significant resources into this first phase, this response phase. And the analogy I'm making, or I guess metaphorically what I'm saying is hurricanes, they come and they blow away. And after the hurricane leaves, the skies are blue and typically it's beautiful weather. It's left uh, damage, obviously, in its wake and flooding, which can be problematic. So I don't mean to diminish that. But this coronavirus, in many ways, I, I would argue, is um, is still ashore, if you will, to use that metaphor, that we may be dealing with this for some time because we just there's just so much we don't know about it. So we're going to recommend some support here in the initial phase. And for North Carolina and South Carolina, we like to use intermediaries, organizations in, that can aggregate funds and then also have their eyes and ears close to the ground so they can get resources to appropriate places. You know, I do think help is on the way. I think uh, both from the federal side and from the private side, I think other funders, corporations are announcing commitments that they're making as well. So um, I think we're all going to try to pitch in and do our part. Rhett, a quick follow-up to that about board engagement. You mentioned the emergency meeting of your board, and we've been talking with nonprofits about how they are engaging their board leaders at this time. Curious about your thoughts, both from the perspective of foundation and your board, but also as you look at nonprofits and your advice to them on engaging with their board leadership now. Thank you. Great question. With respect to our board, I've always, we so we have 15 board members, and I've always believed that they are 15 people who have ties to the Carolinas who have some understanding and appreciation of this challenge and the historical perspective as well. So I think if you're a nonprofit CEO, then it behooves you to uh, reach out to your board members and solicit their ideas and their thoughts and their perspective. Because, you know, I watched something last night on uh, 60 Minutes with Brene Brown. I don't know if you saw it, but Basically, we as humans need each other. And although we're physically separated now, um, I think we've got to be intentional about staying connected to each other and reaching out to your board, soliciting their opinions, getting their thoughts, and what's the appropriate response for your organization. I think that applies to the Duke Endowment and it applies to nonprofits as well. I think it's a, I think it's a appropriate response. And on that note, are you hearing directly from your grantees and how are you communicating with them? So we are hearing directly from our grantees. The spring is a busy time for us in terms of grant recommendations. We have successive meetings in March, April, May, and June across all four areas of our grant making, higher education, rural church, rural United Methodist churches, healthcare, and child welfare. Each of those meetings are coming in succession here over this four-month period. And what we're doing now is we're scheduling Zoom calls. I think everybody's using Zoom these days or Microsoft Teams. 
we're scheduling Zoom calls with our grantees, some of whom have requests in the pipeline. And so we're following up with them to say, is this still a priority? Or has your priority changed in light of what's happened here? And if so, we are fine with that. We just want to make sure you're comfortable with going forward with this recommendation or not. So we're trying to have that conversation. We're also trying to be a little more flexible about how they spend resources that we may already be sending to them. Now they need to account for it. But for the most part, we're granting some flexibility if they need to divert some resources from some project we're currently funding towards some immediate need. We're generally comfortable with that. We think it's all about communications. We'd rather know on the front end as opposed to learn afterwards. Uh, But we're doing things like that to try to stay in touch. And that's happening across all four areas of the Duke Endowment. And that shows your generosity, exactly what we're here to talk about. We appreciate that. Uh, You're kind. Well, uh, it's easy to be generous when you work for a generous organization. You're kind. Thank you. Well, you know, and Red, you've you made reference to sort of the major areas that the Duke Endowment has supported. And and you made me think about how critical each one of those components are in this sort of hurricane analogy. You know, you talk about improving health and the front line of folks right now are a lot of the healthcare professionals. The Duke Endowment espouses nurturing children. I know a numerous number of YMCAs who are staying open for childcare for frontline workers like you know, healthcare professionals. You talk about educating minds now more than ever. Since we're all virtual, we're having, we all just had talked offline about having children online through educational purposes right now. And then lastly, sort of enriching the spirit of the Carolinas, what you do through the Methodist Church and what you do through rural parts of the state that often are neglected. So all of those are so relevant right now to what's happening in the mindset. And it sounds like, and I applaud the trustees for taking the initiative to think through what their opportunities are. Well, thank you. I think you've hit on something actually that strikes me often, and that is the areas that Mr. Duke identified back in 1924, almost 96 years ago, are still areas that are relevant in today's society. Higher education, there's a lot of discussion around higher education and whether the current model is viable. Churches, what's the fate of churches? We have fewer people going to churches and we fund rural churches. There are fewer people in rural communities. So what's the future there? Healthcare is a common topic on the campaign trail and is something this country continues to struggle with. And children, helping children to grow and giving them opportunities to reach their potential to grow into productive and promising and hopeful adults, I think, is a critical aspect as well. And it's, it's amazing as an organization that's been around as long as we have, 96 years later, for those issues, they're different in many ways than they were, obviously, than they were in 1924. But they're still relevant to today's conversation in many ways. And um, so our challenges are always there. And our opportunities are there as well. As you look across the landscape of both grantees and in your community in the Charlotte area as well, just what have you seen? You mentioned what the federal government is doing, what everybody's sort of leaning in to do as well. What have you seen others do well in this effort? Maybe a grantee, just maybe somebody down the street. I'm just curious, what are you seeing as as you, because you have such a lens, particularly over two states, um, what's happening in your world? You alluded to one of the things. So we help four schools of higher education. Duke University, Davidson College, Johnson C. Smith University, and Furman University. And all four of those have essentially closed their schools, closed their campuses, and they've gone to online education. They're also trying to figure out what this is going to do to their revenue. It's going to hurt it, there's no doubt. It may also hurt uh, next year's enrollment because the spring is a time when people come and visit campuses and things of that nature. But one, you know, the schools almost immediately have 
cleared out their campuses and they've gone to online education. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Hospitals are a little bit, the effect on them is a little bit counterintuitive because in some ways you would think their business is unfortunately booming because you have this medical healthcare crisis at their doorstep. But actually what's happening with hospitals is that to make room for these cases that are either on the way or have already arrived, they're having to forego surgeries, particularly elective surgeries. And healthcare makes money in certain services when they provide procedures and surgeries, and they generally lose money when it's more of a nursing care in a hospital bed type thing without being able to charge for procedures. This shift in their service mix, if you will, from a balanced service mix with surgeries and procedures and then med sur- medical surgical care on the floors is now being tilted toward providing the beds, the ICU, and the treatment for those who have respiratory issues. And they're foregoing the revenue that otherwise would be generated through the surgeries. And that's creating a cash challenge for many of our healthcare systems. I think I read recently a lot of our rural hospitals, which are already on a tight margin as it is, I think they're down to somewhere below 30 days of cash on hand. Healthcare and hospitals are adapting and trying to meet the need, but in doing so, it has some sort of maybe an unintended consequence. Our churches are similar to our schools of higher education. They're having online services. Uh, One thing they're having to figure out, by the way, is because they can't pass the plate online, is a lot of them, particularly our rural churches, are not as set up for contributions and gifts online. So they're having to adapt and move to that. In the children's child welfare world and, and all the outreach to children and their families, our nurse home visitors we fund a lot of nurse home visiting programs, uh, nurse family partnership, family connects. A lot of them are moving to using Zoom to have a, a telehealth, if you will, a telemedicine consult as opposed to going into the home. And so they're using the technology on the phone, have a conversation with mothers and their children, and essentially to conduct the home visit remotely using technology. Thankfully, uh, this just happened in South Carolina, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid in in Washington, D.C. are currently allowing for Medicaid dollars to be paid to those online visits that nurses are making. Historically, the service modality using online technology has been ahead of reimbursement. And so a lot of healthcare providers would prefer to go this way and kind of test out to see if it's more effective. It's certainly more efficient, but reimbursement has not been available heretofore. This crisis, and I guess there's silver lining in every crisis, this crisis may lead to Medicaid funding and other funders to be willing to pay for online visits and interactions in more aggressively than they have been historically. It's kind of interesting to watch. But everyone's having to adapt and make changes. And I think most are doing it calmly and matter-of-factly and knowing that we've got to work through this. There's no way around this. We've got to plow through this challenge and we've got to do our best to meet the needs. You know, it's interesting, Rhett, a lot of the things you just touched upon, it's sort of what happens in crises when some of the issues are revealed in themselves, weaknesses and systems, and is what we learn from the recovery through you going back to your hurricane analogy, that we're all hoping that our state, our communities, our nation will embrace and understand going forward. Does that mean future fluidity and, and reimbursements elements? Possibly. I'm just hoping that they learn enough that it builds upon what we're doing now so that maybe there's less sort of discrepancies, rural versus urban, 
socioeconomically speaking, that can benefit us all. That's a great point. Um, I was reading recently an article, I guess it was in New York Times, where a epidemiologist was studying past pandemics, and I guess referred to the 1918-1919 pandemic, and how that actually changed life going mm-hmm. forward for people in meaningful ways. And I don't want to make this sound, this is horrible and challenging, so I want to make sure I make that point. But there could be opportunity for change, appropriate change coming out of it as well. I'm optimistic that we will learn from this. One of the things we're discussing in our office is that once we get this behind us, how do we work with the North Carolina and South Carolina Institutes of Medicine and, for lack of a better word, do an after-action review? In other words, when we get enough distance from this, where we think we can sit back and appraise how we responded, whether we were prepared, could we have been more prepared? How do we do that analysis on the back end to inform us for the future challenge and so that we can be more prepared next time going forward? And what did we learn from this whole experience and what could be employed so that we can be more efficient and effective going forward, irrespective of whether there's a, uh, another pandemic a few years down the road? Yeah, it's amazing. All of us, the Duke Endowment included, are having to rethink strategies leading up to this. Well, we've ever had those conversations, but now that we're ending, it's causing us to be inventive, fresh thinking. Thinking about all the things that Duke Endowment has been supporting, you've always, the grantees particularly, been on that front line of these issues that are now surfacing through all this pandemic. So to that, we thank you, Rhett, the Duke Endowment, for being a part of Generously Speaking. We always like to end our conversations by asking about generosity itself, because we're called generously speaking. I'll just tell you on a personal note, when I was a little girl, I got to spend a lot of time with Jim and Mary Siemens. Mary Duke Biddle Trent Siemens was to me the grandmother of philanthropy. I hung around the School of the Arts, which she supported well. And as granddaughter of James B., to me, she is the very picture of generosity. I'm curious about your impressions of her or anyone else that you want to share with us as a generous soul. Well, my impressions of Mary uh, Duke Biddle Trent Siemens, having worked with, had the honor of knowing her for more than 20 years, can be summed up in one word. She was a saint. I heard an interesting story, and I'm going to forget the name of the gentleman, but this is a, a story of generosity, and it relates to Mary Siemens. Uh, there was a, a recently a Duke graduate alum received an award as a distinguished alum of Duke University. African-American gentleman from South Carolina, small town of South Carolina. He grew up in a single-parent home, and his mother really pushed him to do well in school, to be a doctor or a lawyer. And so he was able to go to Duke. He went to Duke and was on the pre-med path. And toward his junior or senior year, he started to get involved on Duke's campus with their local plays and, and participate in their plays and their drama activities. He participated in a role in a play that Mary Siemens happened to attend. And at the end of the play, afterwards, people were backstage and this little lady with kind of big hair, this is how he described it, walked up to him and grabbed his hand. And she said, tell me about you. And he said, well, I'm from South Carolina. I'm pre-med. And she looked at him in his eyes. She said, you're not pre-med. I'm going to send you to go get training in the theater. And I'm going to send you to London to get training. And that's what you're going to do. And this man now has a Tony for his performances on Broadway. Her ability to see talent in other people, to believe in other people, her unfailing confidence in other people, and her willingness to give to others to provide them opportunities. That's just one small story of a generous, generous soul, a wonderful lady. 
So true. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks for your time, Rhett. We really do appreciate it. Since concluding our interview with Rhett Mabry, the trustees of the Duke Endowment have approved $2.5 million to support North and South Carolinians impacted by the coronavirus crisis. Details of this news of generosity can be found in the episode notes at capdev.com slash podcasts. You've been listening to Generously Speaking from Capital Development Services, trusted advisors in philanthropy and executive search since 1984. Look for our podcast episode notes at capdev.com slash podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn.